This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Feb- Friday, February 7th, 2020, and I am Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. We have a really good show for you guys today. We are talking about how behavioral science can be used within the workplace uh, to improve agencies and to improve how they interface with the public. We have two guests in studio with us and one joining us over the phone. First, let me introduce Sharon Benjamin. Sharon is a principal, a senior principal at The Clearing. Good morning, Sharon. Good and morning. Thank you for being here. Next, we have Lindsay Moore. Lindsay is a principal advisor for the Behavioral Insights Team's North America branch. Lindsay, welcome to the show and thanks for joining. Thanks for having me here. Finally, we have John Haxton. John is head of thought leadership at the Myers-Briggs Company. John, thanks for talking with us. Good morning, and yeah, thank you for having me. So before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners, LLC. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. To learn more about them, visit ltcfeds.com today. Guys, I'm really interested in this show because I think that behavioral science really is the key to improving not only agencies, but how they interface with the public. We talk a lot on this show about the high-level macro issues. Uh, Just a couple weeks ago, we had a really cool show on human capital management within the federal government, which, as our listeners know by now, because we've said it many times, um, over 70% of the high-risk list from GAO is underpinned by human capital challenges. And we talk about that a lot from this kind of big policy level. But I think what this show is going to do is really give the federal employee a a good understanding about what behavioral sciences are and then how they can apply that in small ways within their workforce that can really help change the agency as a whole. Um, And so I'm really excited about that. We're going to start the show by just understanding the science and what it is. And then in the later segments, we're going to get into how it can improve the agency, improve employees, and for federal managers, how it can allow them to lead more effectively. Before we get into all of that fun stuff, I want to give each of our guests a chance to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about the great work that their organizations are doing. Sharon, I'm going to start with you. I'm a huge fan of The Clearing, and I think it's something, uh, a group that a lot of our guests should really know about. So I'll toss it off to you. Good morning. The Clearing is a management consulting firm in D.C. We have about 110 Uh, consultants on staff, and we think of ourselves as a horse of a different color. We are really rooted in uh, behavioral and organizational sciences, and we try to approach problem solving in fairly uh, different ways than maybe some of the larger management consulting firms. I love the way you described that, a horse of a different color. I've um, gone to a few of the trainings that the clearing does, and I think that's a great way to describe it because you always walk in and you are really, you have to unlearn kind of the basic way. I went to one on note-taking, and it was all about unlearning just the standard write-down little brief notes about what people say and teaching you how to take notes on meetings and engage in a way that is completely different and opens up a new side of your brain. Uh, So we thought that was a really great way to describe it. Highly recommend checking out the clearing and some of the events that they do. Lindsay, the Behavioral Insights team is new to the D.C. area. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about 
where y'all came from and what the next steps are. Sure. Thanks, Natalia. So the Behavioral Insights team started in 2010 inside the UK Prime Minister's office in London. Um, we started out basically as an organization inside federal government in London to try to bring what was happening in this field of behavioral economics and behavioral sciences into federal government practices, and specifically as a way to help make governments more effective and more efficient. So we spun out of government in 2014 to become this uh, global social purpose company and founded an office in New York in North America, then uh, mostly working under Bloomberg Philanthropy's What Works Cities program. Um, and since 2015, we've really started to expand a lot of that work uh, to also include working with states and working with the federal government, again, to bring a more realistic model of human behavior into the ways that governments design policies and programs and operations. Um, and really, as part of that, a, a big part of our mandate is also testing to see what works and using that kind of rapid, low-cost evaluation to try to see what works within government. I'm, I know we're going to dive more into the What Works Cities. I think it's a really interesting thing that you guys have done. And, and, some, uh, and I know in the next segment, we're also going to dive into the policy surrounding um, some of this stuff. But I, I love just you starting off with how you guys really focus on those low-cost evaluations because it brings a lot of evidence to what we've been talking about for a long time. Um, and, you know, the federal government always trying to figure out the best way to engage the public. I think the evaluations that you guys are doing are really interesting, and I can't wait to talk more about that. Um, John, joining us from abroad, um, can you talk to us a little bit about the Myers-Briggs company and some of the great work that you guys are doing? Thanks, Natalia. So yes, we're called the Myers-Briggs company. Um, and I'm guessing many of your listeners will have heard of the Myers-Briggs type indicator of the MBTI. Uh, and traditionally, I guess, we're known as a test publisher, uh, publishing and using especially personality instruments. A lot of our expertise we use about applying personality, about larger personality workplace, both in terms of our own consultants, our own people, working organizations, but more especially actually training people to use our tools, to use our personality assessments uh, so they can apply those insights themselves in their own organizations, or even increasingly actually just to themselves as individuals. And it was really interesting actually uh, hearing Lizzie talk about the Behavioral Insights Unit because we're, we're starting to try and apply some of that work ourselves instead of the work we do directly with, with consumers. As an organization, we're, I guess, a little shy of 300 people at all. We were founded in the United States, um, but we have offices in Europe, which is why I'm on the phone, because I'm calling from my kitchen in the United Kingdom, um, and also in Australia and in Singapore. So that's, I guess, a, a short praise of what we're about. Yeah, and I, you know, when reading a lot about the Myers-Briggs company, you guys are, of course, known um, for the personality test type stuff. But I, there's like an underlying message about self-awareness that I think is really great. Absolutely. And I, and I think that that's Absolutely. really interesting. And, and I can't wait to dive a little bit more into that because I, I do notice how just teaching people in the workplace to be more self-aware and to, you know, understand how their personality impacts the way that they work and the way they engage with others is a really important thing. Um, and it's definitely, I, I think it's a little bit uncomfortable for people. I think the idea of being self-aware, it, it creates a sense of discomfort that disrupts the norms of a workplace and kind of forces you to be more introspective and to think about how your actions affect others in a different way. So I'm really excited to have you on, John. Um, thanks so much again for being here and calling in from Thank abroad. You. So to start us off, um, we are actually just right up against our first break. So when we come back, we'll really start the discussion about what is behavioral science and, and kind of understanding how that's different than organizational science um, and how the two kind of interplay in recent time. So we are going to head into our first break now, and we'll continue the discussion with Sharon, John, and Lindsay when we return. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just diving in to the backstory on behavioral science. And John, um, I wanted to talk to you first and, and just kind of pose the question, what is behavioral science? It's a really good question. Uh, it's the sort of question, if you ask it to lots of different people, you'll get lots of different answers. Um, from from the point of view of my organization, where I'm coming from, really behavioral science is really about psychology and about understanding people and applying that knowledge to solve real-world issues, which in what, what much of work that my organization does really is, as you alluded to just before the break, really about helping people to build their self-awareness so they understand each other better, so themselves better, so they could also understand other people better and hence improve things like conflict, things like communication in, in the workplace. So from my point of view, it's really rooted in psychology and using those insights to understand people and help people understand themselves as well. But I guess you might get a couple of different answers from the other two guests. Yeah, I do think it's interesting how everyone kind of has their own take on this. And we were chatting just before the show started about how, you know, behavioral and organizational sciences, although they are often kind of thought of as really similar, are, are two distinct things. And Lindsay, you, I think you kind of described it really well. And I'd love to hear again your take on that difference between behavioral and organizational sciences. Sure. Well, I think to build off of John's definition, um, we at the Behavioral Insights team really think of behavioral science as being this intersection of uh, psychology and economics and really thinking about, you know, how those things work together. Um, specifically, I think classically, you know, classical economics suggests that people are rational decision makers. And especially because we come from government and we work in government, uh, we often think about creating policies and programs around this rational actor. And what we've been discovering over the last several decades is that that old model is not actually true, right? There are ways in which people can act what Dan Ariely says is as predictably irrational, right? There are ways that people systematically deviate from the ways that we think they ought to behave or the ways that they even want to behave. And I think a lot of the field of behavioral sciences is trying to figure out where that gap exists between how we think people ought to behave and how they actually do behave in the real world. And you can think about a lot of the implications for this in policies and programming in terms of why aren't people taking up my program? You know, why aren't people complying with this particular policy? Um, and understanding that at the root of all policy is this type of behavior change that we want to see. So I think by using data and using evidence and research to really try to figure out where those differences are between, uh, you know, perceived behaviors uh, and, and actualized behaviors, I think is really important. Um, and the last thing I'll say about that is, again, I think that classical model of economics really assumes that uh, the constituents that we interact with are very Spock-like, right? That they can uh, aggregate this large amount of information and make these perfect decisions uh, to reveal their their stated preferences, um, when in fact, we just see, you know, every day that that just doesn't happen. No, absolutely. I think that the way that you just framed that was really interesting uh, because, you know, when I think of it, it's really easy if something doesn't go as planned or if someone doesn't do what you ask them. It's easy to think, oh, that's they're just an outlier. Like, they're that's not – we don't need to focus on that. It, they're just the wrong one. But when you actually take a step back and realize – you know, just because it didn't work the way you thought it would doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I'm right, they're wrong. Maybe there's like a better a better way to that we could have communicated this or worked through something um, in order to achieve the desired result. And I think that idea of not just dismissing people as irrational, but actually understanding why something didn't go the way you wanted it to is very important. Um, Sharon, you've been in this space for a while, and so I'm kind of curious about how you've seen this change over time. 
over time, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that in the 80s, we had fairly mechanistic ideas about how organizational behavior emerged and how it could be designed and controlled. And lots of us stood back and thought, hey, this is not going the way we thought it was, and we're not seeing the kind of success that we would predict. So what could possibly be going on? And looking towards complexity science and biology for new models, what we see is that organizations are made up of social human beings. And so there's a lot of overlap between organizational science and what happens on the social network side of the organization. We can draw a picture of an organization that looks like a hierarchy, or we can map the social network of the organization, and the social network is going to be much more predictive of behavior than the hierarchy. So there's, there's this wonderful overlap between um, fields that are finally converging that have been maybe too separate for too long. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point of this idea that these are not separate issues, but that they are actually go hand in hand. And that's why, you know, I wanted to host the show with all you guys kind of coming from the different areas to get to like the same issues, um, because I think it's really interesting to see all of this great research kind of come together. I think some what you guys just kind of hit on was this idea that like things weren't working before. And I'm curious about how you feel about what the consequences for either agencies or, you know, workspaces that choose to ignore behavioral science. Um, You know, you have that manager that's like, I don't think that's real. Uh, I don't want to focus on it. And what kind of almost systemic issues kind of arise in these agencies. John, I'm curious if you have anything to say on that. I know I've read some of your works on how it can fuel bias in the workplace. Um, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think one of the things that's most clear is that it's a sad truth that most of us think we know more and think we're better than we actually are. And I would say to include myself in that. There's something called the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which really says we, we know more than we think we do. And to some extent, um, we've brought us out of some research that we did. So, for example, a little while ago, uh, we did some research where we got people to take a, a reasoning test and also estimate how well they did. And one of the things we found is that most people overestimated how well they did. And also, the worse they did on the test, the more they overestimated. And I should say in passing at men actually were much worse or any point of view much better at thinking they're better than they were than, than women are. Um, and this applies to all sorts of areas of our lives. So there's a study back in 1981 which asked US drivers, are you an above average driver? Now logically you might think that half would say yes and half would say no. Um, I don't know if anyone's heard of this before, but the percentage of U.S. drivers who said they're above average was 93%. So we tend to think we're better than we are. And I think we're, one of the places where we find this in particular is that this applies to how self-aware we are or think we are. And we did some research on this a little while ago as well. We asked people, are you more self-aware than people like your subordinates, your peers? your manager, and most people thought they were more self-aware than all, than all, of, those, than all of those people. Um, so there's a big gap in self-awareness, and I think that drives a lot of the dysfunction in organizations. If we don't understand ourselves, it's very difficult to understand how we're the same as or different other people, and so it's very diff- difficult to understand other people. And this plays into things like having more narcissistic uh, managers or leaders who think they're right all the time and don't take any heed from anybody else. And that's one of the places that organizations often really perform very badly and ultimately uh, can crumble and fail. So a lot of what we do in our organization is trying to help people to build up that self-awareness so they can apply that knowledge, that knowledge of their behavior, that particular variant of behavioral science, to actually helping themselves work over people, perhaps lead others better, perhaps even lead their organizations better. 
Yeah, I think that self-awareness gap is definitely uh, I, I the look on all of our faces uh, when you said that ninety three percent of drivers think that they're you know the best. At, um, I think that says enough. I'm sure people listening yeah. also agree that that is um, wildly out of touch. Um, <laughs> but but I think you really well, hit on the nineteen eighty one. So you know. Okay. <laughs> so that was the 1981. So, you know, perhaps things have got better or perhaps things have got worse. Uh, we have to do, we'll have to do a study again. Yeah, but I think the self-awareness gap is really true. And I really like how you tied it to narcissistic leaders because I think um, that that is something that can definitely, I, I think most of our listeners will agree, having one leader who, you know, has a huge self-awareness gap and thinks that they don't need their employees input as much as perhaps they do can really fuel a negative workplace culture. And I would love to hear um, if Lindsay or Sharon want to jump in on that and kind of the consequence there. Well, I'll just jump in to say that um, to your original question, Natalia, about ignoring this research, I think, you know, a lot of behavioral science research, interestingly, has been known in the private sector for decades, right? These are things that aren't really new necessarily, uh, but we just haven't applied them in the public sector in quite the same way. And so I think when we talk about um, systematic biases or disadvantages of not incorporating the lessons from this work that's happening all around the world, um, what we're really missing out on is an opportunity to capitalize on making our programs the most effective and efficient that they can be. Um, And I'm thinking about that particularly in terms of when people sit down to design anything from internal team meetings or internal, you know, organization communications, um, or whether it's about interacting with constituencies and, you know, and, and constituents sending them letters, sending them forms, trying to get them to engage in programs. These are all things where evidence uh, is rapidly growing in terms of what works for these uh, particular outcomes that people want to see. And by ignoring that, we're really missing an opportunity to uh, to make our organizations. Um, the best that they can be. Yeah, absolutely, Sharon. <clears throat> One of the heartbreaking things to me as a Fed and as someone who really believes in the civil service is that the federal government has often been an incubator for really, really high and important research in behavioral sciences. So OPM was an incubator very, very early for all the emotional intelligence work Hay McBear and Goldman's work grew out of. But it was incubated in the federal government, and yet it has faded in that space. So finding ways to continue to infuse behavioral sciences in ways that feds can metabolize seems really important to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, particularly President Obama signed an executive order focused on exactly that. It was using behavioral insights to better serve the American people. It established in 2015 an office within the White House to focus on how behavioral science could be better used within federal agencies. And that has kind of recently been folded into the GSA Office of Evaluation Sciences. And Sharon, I know you spent some time at GSA, so I'd be really curious to hear from you about how the federal government has, you know, in some way attempted to utilize this science. Absolutely. I spent five years in the General Services Administration and because the organization does provide general services across government, they're pretty forward thinking about the kind of evaluation, customer service, behavioral science work that would be helpful across many, many different agencies. So they take it pretty seriously. And that office at GSA sits very close to the Office of Customer Experience. But think just for a moment about what might also be happening in the public building service. So we have new workplace. We're sitting in a beautiful one here. It's absolutely stunning. And you can see all kinds of behavioral science research that has shown up in the design of this space in the same way that it's showing up in the design of federal spaces. So across government, there are these initiatives to try to infuse better thinking, higher order analysis, And how do we push it out into agencies? And I want to highlight that for one second, because I think what you just said is really interesting. It's not just about training the people, but it's also about creating the space, you know, like visually and structurally that encourages that type of a collaborative environment. 
That's really cool. When we get back, we're going to dive into this topic of behavioral government. I really want to talk about some of the work that Myers-Briggs has done in terms of military coaching and also the What Works Cities project from the Behavioral Insights team. So we are going to take our first, second break rather right now. And when we get back, uh, we will dive more into this. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I'm here with John Haxton of the Myers-Briggs Company, Lindsay Moore of the Behavioral Insights Team, and Sharon Benjamin of The Clearing, talking about behavioral science. And, you know, right before the break, we talked a little bit about how behavioral science is used in government. And I want to get into uh, some of the more specific examples of that. And John, um, I noticed that the Myers-Briggs does some work with um, assessments and military coaching. And I was kind of curious if you could speak a little bit to about how that works and some of the work you're doing in that space. Absolutely. So let me give you a, a couple of examples. Uh, I'll start with one that's based in the UK. So we did quite a bit of work with the Royal Air Force in their, in their pilot training. Uh, as you might imagine, pilot training, whether you're the US, UK, or anywhere else, is really, really expensive. Uh, you really don't want people to drop out unnecessarily. What was happening here was that in the original pilot training, the RAF were using a very traditional sort of explain how to do something, demonstrate how to do it, watch people do it, criticize any mistakes, and keep going until they get it right. So going back to something that Lindsay said before, they were really treating people like robots. And what we find in many places is this sort of one-size-fits-all approach to training really doesn't work because people are different. So what the RAF did was they introduced the Myers-Briggs type indicator as training for their trainers, their flight trainers, who then were able to adopt a more coaching approach by actually understanding that people were different and that different approaches worked with other people. And that allowed for a much more effective training program and effectively saved the RAF quite a bit of money because good potential pilots didn't drop out because of the original one-size-fits-all approach to training. To take an example from the, for the United States, we use another of our tools, the CTI-260, with the U.S. military. And what that allowed us to do was senior leaders of the U.S. military. What that allowed us to do was to identify the sorts of competencies that the particular skills, abilities, and aptitudes that any individual leader had that they excelled in and also the ones which perhaps they needed to develop in a very sort of structured way. And allowed us to give them feedback on how they might develop those areas where perhaps they were more lacking in. So it was a very structured approach using a personality questionnaire and feedback to again help the individual understand themselves, but also to help us understand where they really were working well and where perhaps their competencies didn't quite fit what was needed. And we were also able to put together an online system by which the, uh, the leaders of each cadre were able to see where the overall gaps and overall uh, fit was in any particular group of leaders, go through training programs, 
to actually tailor the training again to the needs of that particular group. So again, this particular one was not just about individual development, it was about group development, and it was really very much about finding out what was working, what was not working, and developing those areas that weren't working so well. I love that it's not just about helping an individual identify what skills they need to develop, but also allowing you to look at the organization then as a whole and say, okay, now that we actually know the skills we have, we can fill gaps. And, you know, that I just think immediately of how that can be used to improve the hiring process where you can find people who actually fill the gaps that you need filled within your organization. It seems like, yeah, it can be really used um, both on the individual level and the organizational level those some of those assessments. That's really interesting. Uh, the CPI, the CPI two sixty in particular is actually quite widely used as recruitment. But again, we've we've built these sorts of models to apply to different job families. So that organisations, uh, whether they're in the government or outside of government, can actually start with choosing the right person for a job. Yeah, and then you're 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 not just reactively training your employees, but you're also able to take a very proactive approach uh, to this issue. That's really great. And I know the Behavioral Insights team is doing something, you know, kind of maybe under the same vein, but a little bit differently in their What Works Cities initiative. Yeah, so there are sort of two answers to that. I think something just to speak very briefly about something John said. Um, the Behavioral Insights team uses uh, a system that we helped to develop called Applied. When we talk about recruiting, um, recruiting people in a way that downplays or tries to mitigate some of those systematic biases that we see in hiring, right? So how can we, um, you know, de-identify folks that are applying? How can we really get to questions that um, reflect the actual duties of a job rather than the sort of traditional cover letter and resume uh, style uh, of, of hiring? And, and it's uh, been used uh, with with a lot of success. So I think that's something that's really interesting to think about. Um, a really quick story uh, on that. I think the most common, or, or I think I, maybe just my favorite example of this was um, back when uh, when there were sort of symphony hirings, right, for people and, and uh, musicians would come out on a stage and play the cello or whatever musical instruments they were playing um, and and people would go away and, and they would choose hiring men were systematically um, getting hired at much higher rates than women. And at some point, uh, people put up a veil. So people were then uh, applying for spots in the symphony and, uh, and practicing or, or performing their piece from behind a veil. So you didn't know uh, what gender the musician was. And sure enough, you see uh, women getting hired at much higher rates, right? So, so we see things like that, um, ways of, of sort of de-biasing those kinds of hiring processes happening um, all around. But to get back to your point, Natalia, about the What Works Cities program, um, that's a program, again, that's sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. And, and when the Behavioral Insights team came to North America in 2015, uh, we really came to, to be part of that program. So since 2015, we've worked in over 50 cities on about 100 projects. And most of these were with mid-sized cities, so between about 100,000 and a million people. And what we would do um, in sort of the first phase of that cohort was go work with mayor's offices around the country to use behavioral insights and local cost evaluation to try to um, enhance government services, right? So it could be something as simple as redesigning a form or a letter that gets sent to uh, people within those cities to try to increase um, civic engagement, for example, or increase take up of particular programs that the city wanted to uh, have more citizen engagement with. Um, and now we've expanded to uh, sort of a second phase of this work, which is what we're calling an economic mobility cohort, where we're working with 10 cities around the country on really trying to tackle issues related to economic mobility. So that could be anything from, uh, you know, financial solvency to uh, work we're doing currently in Dayton, Ohio, around preschool attendance um, and a bunch of different programs like that. That's really cool. And I, I, I love something that both you and John hit on a little bit was the potential economic benefit of utilizing behavioral science. Because when you're able to improve um, employee productivity, when you're able to, you know, I read one example from the behavioral insights team of changing the placement on a form for people who had gotten tickets um, and just like how you asked them and they, you know, you guys like stripped out a lot of the legal language and just kind of made it like, here's a picture of your car, uh, pay your ticket. And it increased the amount of people who were actually willing to pay. And I thought that was so interesting because there is an, in, an inherently 
economic benefit to utilizing this research. And when we think of federal agencies, you know, saving taxpayer funds is always top of mind. And so I think it's really interesting how this can be utilized in that way. And Sharon, you've worked with many federal agencies, and I would love to hear about like some of the ways that the clearing has applied some of these sciences to your work in federal agencies. Yeah, we have um, a fairly large project happening with a major federal agency. Uh, they have a great deal of technical debt on their IT infrastructure. Helping that agency become more agile using what we know about human behavior and organizational behavior has been um, revolutionary for them. And they have launched probably 37, 38 new product lanes. It is quite astonishing what happens when you can help feds understand that small behavioral changes can have multiplier effects in their program delivery. It does not take huge changes, very small changes in attitude and behavior, mostly behavior. Yeah, and I hear a lot from federal employees about, you know, this concern of like, oh, I can't just overhaul my agency. But I think that concept of small changes is really important. And I can see Lindsay agreeing. Yeah, so I think, you know, in the work that the Behavioral Insights team does, I think the classic example of this is, you know, if we ask federal government employees to think about the people that they interface with, right, whether it's do you send a letter to people and do you send, uh, do you interface with customers in this case, you know, or constituents of some kind uh, in the programming that you do? And, and most oftentimes the answer is yes, right? There is somebody that you're interfacing with and there is some behavior that you want to get them to do. And I think to, you know, to uh, Sharon's point about the small changes were really, I think one of the reasons we're so passionate about this work is that oftentimes federal government thinks of running randomized control trials as being these multi-year, you know, tens of millions of dollars in funding projects. And what we're trying to do is dispel that myth, right? These can be very low cost, rapid ways to evaluate to see what works, right? And it's so much better, you know, to spend a small amount of money up front to test to see if something works uh, rather than millions of dollars to find out nothing works or even worse, that it backfires, right? That it's ineffective in some ways and that it's actually producing an opposite result to what you want to see. Um, and, and to the point about um, things being quite light touch, right, these are small nudges that we're trying to use within the federal government or within state governments or within city governments. And the classic example of this from the Behavioral Insights team is when we were working with uh, HMRC, which is Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs or the IRS equivalent in the UK. And what we did is, you know, we had hundreds of thousands of delinquent taxpayers. So these were folks who hadn't paid their tax on time. And all we did was change a very small portion of the letter to say something like nine out of 10 people people pay their tax on time and different variations of that. And by doing a couple of variations across a couple of different letters and rigorously testing this using a randomized control trial, we were able to see what kinds of messaging was most effective. And within something like you know, a month, we gained back millions of pounds in tax revenue. And within a few months, we had hundreds of millions of pounds in tax revenue that came uh, that was brought forward just by changing one line of a letter. And so it's these small tweaks and changes that I would really encourage people, um, especially within the federal government, where you have such a broad reach to be able to think about and, and start um, both applying the behavioral sciences and also rigorously testing to see what works. Because side note, it turns out things like that, which we call social norms, don't always work here in the U.S., no, absolutely. I think that's a really great point. And I want to go back a little bit to talking about like the IT modernization and how that process uh, can go within the federal government, because I know almost every agency has been focusing to some extent on modernizing their IT and reskilling their employees to be able to address like cybersecurity challenges and things like that. And when you have federal employees who maybe have never had significant exposure to the cyber world um, or to really IT skills, being able to communicate the necessary changes can be not only important for the employee to expand their skills, but can really be an issue of national security in some situations. And John, I I noticed some work you had done around um, cybersecurity and how that kind of interfaces with behavioral science and teaching individuals about uh, the importance of it. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how um, either agencies or workplaces can utilize these sciences in that context. 
Absolutely, I, mean, I think there's a it's a very particular cybersecurity point and also a wider point. I think the wider point is uh, when we communicate, we tend, if we don't think about it, to communicate in a way that works for us. Uh, that might not be the way that works that other people were trying to communicate trying to communicate to. So one of the things we found using the, the MySpace type indicator, for example, is that when people put out communication, they can put it out in a range of different ways in a support communication. That's going to actually get the attention and work for people with different personality preferences. But looking at the cybersecurity piece in particular, what we did do was to carry out some research, and we just published it very recently, whereby we looked at how cybersecurity interacts with personality. Because what we found was that particular people with particular personality preferences have um, particular advantages and particular disadvantages of vulnerabilities when it comes to cybersecurity. So just lapsing into MBTI jargon for a moment, my type preferences are what's called INTP, so introversion, liking the big picture, liking to make logical decisions, and not liking to be too organized all the time. What we found was that people like me, and this sadly was a surprise to me, tend to think we're quite clever, and actually are tend on the whole to be quite up on cybersecurity, but tend also sadly to think rules don't apply to them, and tend to uh, try and do better for the rules. So a really good reminder for people like me is the rules are there for a purpose. Don't just go beyond them because actually you don't necessarily know quite as much as you think you do. And we've created these sorts of guidelines for people of every MBTI uh, type preference. So people who know their MBTI results can download those. That's really cool. You know, we did a show um, about a, maybe two months ago now that was all about um, how people utilize data. And one of the groups that we had was actually talking about how they use assessments um, for federal employees. And they'll have a federal employee who works at the Department of Education who's maybe never touched anything cyber related before who does this assessment. And it turns out she has a personality that is fitted for understanding cybersecurity. So then the Department of Education can send her to like a cyber reskilling academy. Um, and, you know, she can learn about all of these things that maybe she had never been exposed to before, but she's naturally predisposed to be better at handling. Yeah. And I think that that's a really in, tying the kind of personalities that fit best to these and allowing them to learn some of those insights and bring them back to their agencies is a, is a really well, cool so. thing. I think so. I should mention that the MBTI as a tool is really about individual development, not selecting people for jobs. But it would be interesting, and we probably could do some research with some of the tools, which really are about selection uh, and looking at whether people, where people's vulnerabilities and where people's advantages might be when it comes to any role, whether it be cybersecurity or, or any other role in life. Again, this whole idea of one size doesn't necessarily fit all. Yeah, absolutely. We have to stop here for our final break, but when we return, we're going to uh, wrap up some of this conversation and really talk about how you know, managers can utilize this in the federal government. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We'll be right back. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show. I feel like we could go on for another hour, but here we are in the last uh, 10, 15 minutes. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, you know, really kind of bringing this in for managers um, and helping them understand ways that you, they can utilize um, behavioral sciences. Sharon has done some incredible work around adaptive space. And I, I would love a little overview on what that is um, and some of the work that you're doing. Okay. Um, federal managers are responsible for delivering goods and services. They are the 
uh, mules that pull the operating system of the federal government forward. It, and it's profound and important work. Absolutely. And in the federal government, along with every other organization, there are entrepreneurial pockets that are responsible for creating innovation and next-gen solutions. Finding ways for those innovative pockets to permeate and be accepted into the operating system actually requires leaders to do some very interesting moves. So what we know based on work published by Michael Arena at the end of 2018, and I'll just do a little plug that it was a Forbes Best Business book uh, that year. Um, What we know about what leaders have to do is be very agile at pivoting. So we want to do both good top-down leading. We also want to elicit good bottom-up, that is from the front line all the way back up through the frozen middle. How do we engage and unleash innovation and um, adaptation across And how do we move inside the organization to the outside so that we're looking at customers and um, employees are sometimes really important parts of our customer base? And how do we also import from the outside? How are we good scouts bringing back in what's happening at the edges of the marketplace into the federal government? So Adaptive Space has some principles about how you would do that. You'd go to the edge of the system to see what is happening out on your social network, you want to follow the energy, and you want to chunk things down into smaller pieces and do really fast A-B testing, because otherwise we invest a lot of money way before we know that we have any hope of success. That's incredible. And I, and I, if you're interested in learning more about the adaptive space research and some of what Sharon is doing, um, I'm totally going to plug for you. And February 26th is Work Better Day. As she's doing, Sharon is doing a training with this organization. I've done a few of their trainings. It will really transform the way you kind of walk into your office and approach these issues. The workbetterday.com, I believe, is where you can learn more about that. February 26th, it's a really great training, and I highly recommend it. Um, Sharon, you've also done some work around leaders and, um, you know, kind of selecting who leads and leading organizations. And uh, I'm kind of curious about how that works both in adaptive space and outside of it, if you want to have any, any like, tips, I guess. Yeah, I think for leaders, um, we published an article in the um, People in Strategy last spring, which was published by the Society for Human, I think I've got it right, Resources Management, SHRM. Uh, I can see their office from my house. Um, <laughs> what we what we know about leading successfully in organizations today is that leaders have to be both resilient, reflective, and they have got to find ways to connect across wide, wide ranges of disciplines. If you are only talking with engineers, you are putting blinders on. Go find a chemist. Hmm. Go find somebody who is so unlike anybody that you are talking with to start to infuse both ideas and social capital in new ways into your organization. If I had one piece of advice for leaders, it would be pay attention to your social capital. We overestimate how much we have. We don't build it and replenish it often enough because we're moving so fast. Pay attention to your social capital. I think that's a great piece of advice, especially when you think of some of the stuff John said earlier about kind of the gaps in self-awareness. I think it is a really important thing for managers to kind of take a step back and check themselves and, you know, ask themselves, do I really know as much as I think I know? And do I really have the social capital that I think I have and how can I better utilize it? In the last couple of minutes of our show, I want to hit on John. I know the Myers-Briggs company has some really great trainings and certifications available uh, to individuals who want to be able to apply this type of knowledge in their workplace. And I would love to give you a chance to inform our listeners about that. Thank you. So uh, this is like a uh, license to plug. So I'll, I'll go ahead and plug. Um, I guess the easiest way for people to what people to do is to go to a website, which is the snappily named www dot 
the Mayans Greeks, all one word, dot com. Uh, you can find lots of information on, on the website. One of the good places to go to start with to look at some of the things that we talk about today and other areas is if you click on the resources tab at the top of the page, there's lots of information there that you can download. And actually the first thing on that list called the Trends Report is a document we created which covers a lot of these topics we've been talking about today and others with I think the custom content that's really useful, not just for HR people, it's redesigned really for managers and leaders to make use and familiarize themselves with these areas. As we've talked about, a lot of the key things we do really are around learning about yourself, learning about other people, and people can get trained up to use our uh, questionnaires and our other assessments. Uh, some even don't need training, but again, look on the website, there's something, for example, called MBTA Online, which lets people actually develop themselves without training. But there's other training programs as well, so do do have a look at that. Uh, just, you know, play around the website and, and find what you can. And there's places there you can ask questions and uh, email us to find out more. Yeah, and I um, I really love your, you know, I think sending people to the website is a really great thing. I love a lot of the stuff you guys have on there. There are some really interesting case studies about diff the ways different companies have applied some yeah. of this research. There's also, I've noticed you guys have a lot of really great webinars um, that are right there on the website. People can watch them and they'll kind of walk you through um, ways that different types of leaders can work within their workspace, ways that you can make small those small changes that we discussed to your workplace. So I highly encourage everyone to go over there and check them out. Uh, from the Behavioral Insights team, it's love, um, why don't you let us know how we can learn more and for people interested? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in addition to our website, which is www.bi.team, um, we do a lot of trainings around the country on how to both incorporate behavioral insights into work at the federal, state, and local levels, um, as well as how to run these low-cost evaluations um, and do this type of A-B testing within people's agencies. Um, we're really excited with the um, Federal Evidence Act that was just signed in 2018 uh, that I think this is going to be a really great opportunity opportunity for federal agencies to use behavioral science and to use low-cost evaluation um, as they're standing up their chief evaluation offices, as they're standing up their learning agendas. And I know there's a lot of excitement here in D.C. about the possibility of that of that overlap as well. So highly encourage folks to learn more about uh, behavioral science and learn more about rapid evaluation and hopefully incorporate it um, at any level of government. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, yeah, like you said, the Evidence Act. Also, I know MSPB and some of their issues of merit has talked a lot about getting subject matter experts involved in hiring and selecting the best team. So this stuff is only going to be more important. You know, thank you so much for hitting on that. And Sharon, why don't you just, as we close here, let people know how they can learn more about The Clearing. Okay, go to theclearing.com. Um, <clears throat> you can also find an assessment about what role you might play in adaptive space at adaptivespace.com. So go take the assessment and see how you show up. Amazing. That is all the time we have for the show today. Lindsay, Sharon, John, thank you so much for chatting with us. And thank all of you for joining us on FedTalk. FedTalk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend.